to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. Based on pop culture and our experiences, work often gets a bad rap. And there are no shortage of terrible work stories. I'm sure we could spend plenty of time hearing all of each other's terrible work stories. Unfortunately, you're just stuck with mine. But it doesn't have to be this way. Jesus worked. God in the flesh worked in many ways during his earthly life. So it can't be all bad. There has to be something redeeming, something good, and maybe something to be learned from Jesus' work life. Maybe if we follow his way, we can find good and beautiful work that is fulfilling and joyful, that uses our gifts and partners with God to not only provide for our families, but to benefit all creation. We covered Jesus as creator in the first week. We looked at Jesus as carpenter last week. Today we touch on something a little bit different, and it starts with really bad news for high school Ryan. The Bible's first answer to what our work in the world is as a human race is this. We are the gardeners. In the creation account we read in Genesis 1 and 2, God gives his image bearers their first invitation into partnership and vocation. Here's what we read in Genesis 1, starting at verse 26, which Brad hit on two weeks ago. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. So everything that God made was very good, and our triune God gives divine image bearers a particular role to reign and to govern all of creation as a steward for God. The first vocation God gives us is summarized well in verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to govern it. Now this is not just or primarily about getting busy making babies, which I'm doing my best to obey, but to extend the glory of God's creative activity and kingdom throughout all the earth. To care for creation, to be the gardeners and caretakers and stewards of this beautiful world. Now it's important to note that this vocation was given to both man and woman, Adam and Eve. There was no hierarchy here in the garden. It's not Adam who has this call or stewardship placed with him to be the gardener and Eve who then supports that call. No, they are together entrusted with stewardship of God's good world. We are the gardeners, and the first divine call and invitation in the Bible is given to both of them together, and by extension to all of us in the Garden of Eden, which is seen in a little bit more detail in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed a tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. We are the gardeners. 
not to do with as we please, to dominate or to act as if we own everything, but rather to serve as good stewards of all that belongs to God. Now, this role of caretaker is affirmed throughout Genesis as well as in other places like Psalm 8, 6 through 8. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Now we're going to talk about how the church is bad at this for a minute. This idea of ruling over creation or having dominion, as some translations read, has been the source of a lot of poor stewardship over the centuries. The logic runs that if something is ours, we can do whatever we want to with it. The problem here is that the earth is not ours. It has been merely placed in our care. Author Matthew Sleeth explains that dominion comes from the Hebrew term meaning higher on the root of a plant. Dominion does not mean ownership or even unrestricted use. Implied in our dominion are is our dependency on everything that is under us. Cut the root out from under a plant and the fruit above it will perish, despite its superior position. And in fact, when we read the Bible many times, God rebukes his people for how they cared for the earth and declares that there will be judgment on those who mistreat it. This is not something that gets talked about all that much. You probably have never heard these verses, but here are a couple of the highlights. Isaiah 24, four through six. The earth mourns and dries up, and the land wastes away and withers. Even the greatest people on earth waste away. The earth suffers for the sins of its people, for they have twisted God's instructions, violated his laws, and broken his everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must pay the price for their sin. They are destroyed by fire, and only a few are left alive. That's pretty intense. Let me read it. Revelation 11. The nations were filled with wrath. But now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name, from the least to the greatest. It is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. God holds us responsible for what happens to the earth on our watch because the earth is clearly God's creation and possession. Psalm 24, 1 through 2 says it this way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. God's ownership is the basis of our stewardship. Life of Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant that Philippians 2.7 tells us, which is exemplified in a life of service and sacrifice, not of control or dominion or domination. But this first call to work that's given to people, this first command in the Bible, is far from easy. It can be toil, as I experienced in my never-ending work of weeding. In fact, God tells us this is going to be the case as a result of Adam and Eve's choice to believe the lie that their way was better and to place themselves at the center of their lives instead of leaving God at the center. A choice that we repeat often ourselves. So this is part of the curse. I'd like to look at the curse a little bit. And he said to the man, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. 
So what was initially designed to be a beautiful relationship of reciprocal care is now toil. Cultivating the land is harder than it was meant to be as a result of sin. Toil is excessive, monotonous, never-ending labor that bears little fruit. It leaves us exhausted and unfulfilled. Our world has been mucked up by sin and work has been twisted by greed and the broken desires of broken people. But this is an aspect of the curse that we work against. We don't just accept our lot. We cultivate and we innovate and we do the work needed to move back to the original design in provision from the earth. Similarly, the curse includes pain in childbirth. I will sharpen the pain in your pregnancy and in pain you will get birth. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was no pain in childbirth? That was the original design. But we work against this curse in all sorts of ways, with painkillers and epidurals and breathing techniques and water birth, just to mention a few. The other aspect of the curse that gets publicized but not focused on enough, I think, is this part directed towards the woman, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, for some reason, this part of the curse, instead of being something that we fight against, becomes baptized as how things are supposed to be in a sort of Christian patriarchy. This is nonsense. We should be working against the curse of sin here and do everything we can to return to the original intent of men and women serving side by side as God's stewards in co-leadership and co-service. It would be ridiculous to say, childbirth is supposed to be painful, so no epidural for you. Or raising crops should be hard. No need to use tools or scientific advancements here. Just deal with it with your hands. But this is effectively what the church has done in regards to patriarchy. It's the impact of sin, and it's the way of the world that leads to a battle of the sexes and a struggle for control. This is not the way of Jesus, which is marked by mutuality, service, and love. So I'll just get off my soapbox, which is not really my topic, and return to being gardeners. Historically, we are far beyond being a purely agrarian society. And over the centuries of work and human ingenuity, we have slowly fought against the curse and found ways to provide an abundance of food for our world. If you've ever helped with our mobile food bank, it should be clear to you that there is plenty of food in this area, that no one needs to be hungry in Tucson. What we have is a distribution and a consumption issue. Contrary to popular belief, the main problem ecologically is not population growth putting a strain on natural resources, but unrestrained consumption. The incredible consumption by the citizens in the wealthiest countries is rapidly depleting natural energy sources, deforesting our earth, and producing significant amounts of waste. Americans consume five times more energy than previous generations, and many people may dismiss the effects of this as just the benefit of advancement, the pursuit of greater joy and happiness, but numerous studies have shown that while increasing levels of consumption generally do not increase personal satisfaction, consumers act like it does. Human consumption and selfishness is the source of every other ecological danger and must be curbed before the consequences on the lives of humans and other creatures reaches a tipping point. Let me repeat myself. Human consumption and selfishness is the source of every other ecological danger. We are the problem. Instead of living into our calling as the gardeners, we've taken control. 
as the owners and the hoarders and the consumers. We are not stewarding God's good and beautiful world well. And this is the impact of sin on the earth. And while the Bible tells us creation declares God's glory and worships God, the Bible also is clear that nature is impacted by the sinfulness of humanity and cries for redemption. This is Romans 8. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been growing as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. So we have some work to do. And work is not always bad. In fact, it's often very good. Andy Crouch defines work this way. Work is the fruitful transformation of the world through human effort and skill in ways that serve our, serve our shared human needs and give glory to God. So again, work is the fruitful transformation of the world through human effort and skill in ways that serve our shared human needs and give glory to God. This is a beautiful and noble calling to work. It gives us purpose and significance. Just like the work God gave Adam and Eve, we can join in the work that has dignity and purpose and promotes flourishing of creation and all who dwell here. Work existed before the fall. God worked, and it can be very good. And we are the gardeners. We are in good company. This calling didn't end in the garden, though it has become harder. In fact, there's a scene in Jesus' life that illustrates this for us. We read it together in Easter. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. So Jesus is buried in a garden tomb, if you pay attention to the text. So it should not be totally shocking that Mary, the first evangelist, the first person to announce that Jesus was risen from the dead, the, the very person that every man who stands in a pulpit and declares that Jesus Christ is risen follows in her footsteps. That's also an aside to not my But just remember this. We all are doing what Mary did first. It's good and beautiful. We do it together. Um, it's not shocking that she thinks in a garden that maybe this man is a gardener. Um, but this is not just an odd detail that's included in this triumphant scene for no reason. We talked earlier this year about how you can trace the biblical narrative through key garden the scenes, right? We've got the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden Tomb, which is where we are right now, the Garden City and Revelation. We did a whole prayer walk through the courtyard, kind of walking through that experience in the Bible. So when we read this scene, we're meant to make this connection. We're meant to think about the Garden of Eden. And it should trigger, for those of us who read the New Testament, Jesus' promise that he is making all things new in Revelation 21. The first work people were given, the first call was to tend the garden. We are the gardeners. Before sin mucked everything up, partnering with God in the grand project of the flourishing of all things was an act of worship. And though we live in a world that is marked by sin, Jesus' resurrection is the beautiful first promise 
that it's all being put back together again, that Jesus is making all things new, restoring and resurrecting everything, starting with his body. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, as the gospel Jesus announced, and restoration is possible through him. Preeminent New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way in his book, Surprised by Hope. In the new creation, the ancient human mandate to look after the garden is dramatically reaffirmed. As John hints in his resurrection story, where Mary supposes Jesus is the gardener. The resurrection of Jesus is the reaffirmation of the goodness of creation, and the gift of the Spirit is there to make us the full human beings we were supposed to be, precisely so we can fulfill that mandate at last. Partnering with God to live our lives as signposts of a better world, of what life with Jesus in the kingdom of God looks like in all aspects of our life and work is our vocation. We are the gardeners. Our work is a signpost of the kingdom to care for the world and to contribute to the flourishing of all creation. And this sort of work isn't in vain. It isn't worthless. It's not a crying into the void against the brokenness of our world or a waste of energy for a world that will just be destroyed in the end. No, God is going to redeem all things. It's all his, and he wants it all back. Jesus' resurrection is one of the clearest indicators of this. Jesus was resurrected not as a disembodied soul or ghost, but with a new body in continuity with his old one. God's creation is one that is in space and time and matter. And when he makes all things new, he's not going to suddenly decide, you know, space, time, and matter, that was a good try, but we're just not going to do that at all anymore. Just something totally different. We're just going to just be floating around spiritually. No, space, time, and matter still exist. Jesus' body is in continuity with his old body. We will have resurrected bodies that are recognizable. He had scars on his hands and his side. So he's recognizable in some ways, maybe some ways not. I'm not saying there are no differences. He does have a glorified body, but it is still a physical body. And Paul tells us that we, as followers of Jesus, long for this restoration along with, cre- with creation. This is the continuation of Romans 8. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. And this is not some metaphor for being floating, floated souls. That's not what's going on here. There is no conception in Jewish thought. There is not a continuity between our bodies. Resurrection was always a resurrection in a body. It was not used as a metaphor for going to heaven when we die. There's a tangible resurrection, which matters because when we read Romans 21, it tells us what's coming, right? Creation is longing for redemption, and we long for all that is wrong to be put rights and for justice, peace, and God's goodness to reign. What we're longing for is Christ's return. And this is the picture that John gives us in Revelation 21. He says, this is where we're headed. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. What Revelation tells us is that the intersection of heaven and earth becomes tangible and real here. He will live with them. God comes to us. God has always come to us 
and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying and pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Let me read just a couple chapters later. In the middle of that city, there is a garden, which is why we talk about the garden city. That's where we're headed. God will redeem and restore his world. And instead of hastening its downfall, shouldn't we treat the world the way God treats it? We are called to stewardship. We are the gardeners. And while this call includes creation care, certainly, it's much larger than that alone. Remember the definition of work that we read. Work is the fruitful transformation of the world through human effort and skill in ways that serve our shared human needs and give glory to God. Our world, our gifts and talents, our time and energy, we are called to steward, steward all of them well and to use what we have been given for the flourishing of the world in the way of Jesus. So, what does that mean practically? What should we do, Ryan? Well, we partner with God in his mission of restoration and redemption and reconciliation and resurrection. We live in the kingdom and we point the way to a whole new world. N.T. Wright, who I quoted earlier, encourages a multitude of work in this way. So this is one of the long quotes. But what we can and must do in the present, if we are obedient to the gospel, if we are following Jesus, and if we are indwelt, energized, and directed by the Spirit, is to build for the kingdom. This brings us back to 1 Corinthians 15, 58 once more. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human beings. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God, God's recreation of his wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of his spirit, means that what we do in Christ by his spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. We are the gardeners. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 58 that I referenced. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. It's not wasted. So I encourage you to consider just a few things. First, I think we need to look at our lives honestly and consider, do I love the things that God loves? If God loves his creation, I should love it too. If God loves people, we should love people too. If God says that he loves me, I should accept his love and see myself as someone who is lovable 
in spite of the failings that so easily come to mind. To grow in our love for the environment, for people, for ourselves, and even for God, we need to know and experience them to spend time with them. One author says this, we care for only what we love, we love only what we know, and we truly know only what we experience. Our problem often is that we are not actually experiencing some of these things. I certainly have not spent an hour in the past week sitting in the woods or the fields or the cacti mountain enjoying God's creation. If I'm honest, I hardly notice the beauty that surrounds me as I take my kids to school and drive towards the mountains that surround Tucson. But they're beautiful. And we need to take some time to appreciate the good and beautiful world that God has given us. We need to not only appreciate the good and beautiful world, but also learn to appreciate the wonderful and sometimes maddening people who live on it. The joy in life is in love of people, and often the pain in life is in loving people. But it's worth the love, because the joy outweighs the pain, and I won't experience that without being in deep relationship with people. So let's spend time cultivating our love for God, for his creation, and for his image bearers, that he so deeply loves. And as we grow, as we begin to love what God loves, we need to begin respecting our roles as stewards of creation instead of abusing it. If God entrusted his creation to us, how we treat it is a reflection of how we feel about God. Now, I'm not saying that our whole lives need to revolve around creation care. I want to be very clear. But we do need to do something about it, even if it's small. Jesus tells a story of servants who were entrusted with money to steward for their master. The final one did not even invest his master's money. He buried it and then gave it back to him when the master returns. The master not only called the servant lazy in the story, but also calls the servant evil. Our problem as as humanity, as a whole race, is that we are not giving the earth back to God unchanged. We have actively been part of its deterioration. Instead of stewarding it, and shepherding it like the grapevine in my backyard, it will produce grapes whether I do nothing or something. But if I protect it, if I care for it, if I elevate it, if I trim it, it will flourish in a way that it cannot flourish on its own. That is the sort of role we're supposed to have for the earth, to help it flourish. So, I encourage you to pick one thing, small thing, choose to consume less, to recycle more, reuse and repair instead of simply replace. Shop at a thrift store. Megan and I love taking our kids to thrift stores and buying clothes for them. Walk and bike a little bit more, carpool, consider alternative energy. They're, they're really, it, we, we could go on and on about lots of small ways. And let me just encourage you to start small because even small decisions can grow into large impact over time. Even just recycling, even doing the annoying thing that I do that drives my wife crazy, which is collect the glass and actually take it to those containers that we have to do now, why are they making it harder for us to recycle? It just drives me crazy. Um, but I have this little thing of glass that I just fill up, and then I take it when I go out somewhere. And that's annoying. Um, but it's not that hard. And it doesn't take that much time. We are the gardeners. We need to become agents of restoration instead of agents of destruction. Thirdly, we need to align our lives with the reality of God and the future redemption that Christ will usher in. Christian writer and philosopher Francis Schaeffer said it this way, on the basis of the fact that there is going to be total redemption in the future, 
not only of man, but of all creation, the Christian who believes the Bible should be someone who is treating nature now in the direction of the way nature will be then. We should exhibit a substantial healing here and now between ourselves and nature and between nature and itself. Similarly, we need to treat people as the eternal beings that they are and strive to live as fully in the kingdom of heaven as is possible while we're on earth. We have good and beautiful work to do, not toil, but a partnership with the Spirit in using our gifts, our experiences, our passions, our time and resources, not for ourselves, but for the flourishing of the world. And certainly we benefit from that, but it's not only about us. We are a signpost pointing to God as we live and work in the way of Jesus because we are the gardeners. Now, my first excursion into literal gardening, um, or at least yard work, um, it was a bit of a disaster, um, but it did teach me something important that I think many of you probably have experienced. It taught me what I don't want to do for work. Um, in fact, I've had a number of jobs that helped me understand more and more who I was and what I was designed to be and to do and what I was not designed to be and to do. I have a unique history and personality just like you do, a unique set of gifts and passions, and I said, as I discovered who God made me to be, it helped me discover who I was made or what I was made to do. And all of us at base level are made to love God and to love others, right? All of us are made to do good work that contributes to the flourishing of the world. That's a baseline. We don't have to be confused about why we're here. There's a baseline there. But what we do in that area varies. For me, it means serving our church, teaching on Sundays, providing vision and direction. It also means investing in campus ministers across the United States and Mexico, and soon expanding to Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and Panama. I love people. I love seeing them embrace the way of God ministry. But it is not a better work or more holy than what any of you might do. It's just different. Your unique passions and skills and history and personality all help create a role for you to fill in the flourishing of our world. Frederick Beekner said it this way, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. One of the worst things you can encounter is someone in ministry who's joyless, who does not really believe in Jesus in any way, and is just going through the motions because they get a paycheck. Don't choose that. Choose where you are filled, where your gifts align, and where you can contribute to the world. It all matters. It may just be in your workplace, maybe not even your work. How can I help my coworkers to flourish? How can I love them well? It could be in how you volunteer your time outside of work, like Brad talked about two weeks ago. I don't know what the details are for you, but I do know that it is in you flourishing in the way of Jesus, engaging in good and beautiful work, not in toil, making not just a living, but a life in partnership with God. It does not have to be grand. It doesn't have to be about changing the world. I think a lot of young people, it's like, oh, I want to have impact. What God calls us to is faithfulness. What we need to understand is that the long obedience in the same direction is what changes our, our hearts and our character. The greatest gift that God gets in the world is you and who you become not the mythical impact you might have. It's life well lived in the small moments 
And it's okay to be in a journey here. A lot of you are young. A lot of you are trying to figure out what you're doing with yourself. That's okay. It's okay to not know. It's okay to be unclear about what you're going to do for the rest of your life. It's a process of discovery that we would love to walk with you while we follow Jesus together and love God and others in the way of Christ. Remember, what we do in the Lord is not in vain. And that is the mandate we need for every act of justice and mercy, every program of ecology, every effort to reflect God's wise, stewardly image into his creation. Because we are the gardeners. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and we admit um, that it's very easy to live our lives focused entirely on our own comforts <laughs> and, uh, and just what's going on in our lives, Lord. Help us to begin more and more to move out of ourselves, to follow your way, to realize that's in service and sacrifice of others, that's loving, directed outward, just as you taught us the way. May we discover more and more the unique way you've designed us to fit into this grand narrative of resurrection that's happening in our world. Thank you for your love, Jesus. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for you who raised first and the promise that we will follow you in that way. We long for the time when the pain and the suffering is over, where justice and peace and joy will reign. And until that day, we will work in that direction, into your kingdom, Lord, trusting that you will take our meager efforts and make them into something far more beautiful than we could ever accomplish on our own. We love you, Jesus. It's in your holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.